Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you try and stick to exactly what's in a writing book, one day you'll hit the absence of a chapter. Do you know, I've never found a writing book that's like, what do you do when you've neglected your family for a whole year, you spent your advance, and you've got no money, and you hate yourself? Hi, welcome to the final episode in this series of Write Off, a podcast about writing rejection and how people get through it. I'm Francesca Steele, a journalist and writer based in London. I just wanted to take a brief moment to say thank you, first of all, to my guests who have been so generous with their time and honest about their path to publication, and secondly, to you listeners. As I've mentioned, I made this podcast after my own first book failed to sell on submission. Doing the interviews really helped me move on, but hearing from listeners who've enjoyed the episodes has helped so much too, and it has been a real privilege, so thank you all very much. I actually feel a little silly being so mawkish because I can't help thinking the protagonist of the book we're discussing today would be mildly horrified by this sort of schmaltz. Martha, the narrator of Sorrow and Bliss, is intelligent, critical, loving, cruel, an incredibly nuanced, unforgettable character. She suffers from an undiagnosed mental health condition, and when we meet her, she has just split up with her husband, Patrick. It's a very wise, sad, funny book with a unique, dry tone, and I absolutely loved it. I love it perhaps even more now that I know it was born of failure. Meg Mason is a journalist, originally from New Zealand, now living with her family in Australia, who had previously published two books, a memoir about young motherhood called Say It Again in a Nice Voice, and a novel, also about young motherhood, called You Be Mother. Under contract to write a third book, Meg laboured over a project she loathed for a year before handing it in and feeling so wretched about it that she declared that she was done with fiction altogether. Until suddenly, she found herself sneaking back out to her writing shed and writing secretly, just for her own pleasure, about two characters called Martha and Patrick, and how their marriage had failed. Meg is very gentle, self-deprecating, insightful, and very surprised and curious herself about this extraordinary U-turn. 
We talked about how Martha and Patrick actually existed in her failed novel in a different form, banningthesaurus.com, and how to tell the difference between a difficult project that's worth pushing on with and one that isn't. So here's Meg. So the first one came about because I was working as the managing editor of a weekend magazine at the time. And one of my jobs there was to edit columnists who sent copy in. And you know how sometimes columnists are brilliant and other times they're famous for something else and they have a column and that, you know, it befalls the editor to um, give it a week cleanup. And there was one person who who wrote a column, which I ended up doing a little bit more cleaning than, than normal. And I remember thinking, because that person had just got a book deal, thinking, oh, well, maybe I'll just ring their publisher and I'll, I'll sort of leverage the fact that I'm in this managing editor chair for quite a short time because it was only maternity you know infill for someone and so I slightly blagged my way into a coffee with them and I didn't I hadn't written a book but I kind of put together a sample chapter and she rejected me but then I think because I'd written this chapter I was like oh well I'll just send it out and you know obviously as you know if you've been a freelancer you have developed a certain hide when it comes to cold calling and rejection and things like that so I thought well I've already done it so I'll just send it out and then one of those did actually end up with um, a coffee that kind of turned into an acquisition but I think the problem that that I would have eventually find my way into that I didn't truly understand and I wish more than anything 43 year old me could kind of go back and talk to 31 year old me or whatever I was at the time and just be like people will see this and this is not a magazine story it's not that sort of you know temporal and it will stick around forever Um, because I think that you just write in this complete vacuum and you've never had a book out before and you don't think of yourself as an author so you're just you know you just blast away and and I was sort of only I wasn't far enough out of those early motherhood years to be able to reflect on it with really any wisdom or remove and so I was just I have a really tricky relationship with that book still now. And I get these beautiful letters from mothers who say it made them feel less useless or, you know, but I think it should have a sticker on the cover that says, unless you have postnatal depression, don't read this because you will not enjoy it. Like you have to be (laughs) semi-depressed to kind of like contend with the the edginess of that book. And so I haven't actually looked inside it for a long time, but um, yeah, I feel funny about it. But then UV Mother came about because that was one of a two book deal. And so, but I let a long time elapse before I started writing again, just sort of, you know, slunk back to my day job and thought, um, you know, that will be it for a while. But then, of course, I had already I was already contracted to write this other book and got gradually more and more afraid that they'd sue me or something. So I just literally had to start. So you didn't have an agent still, but after, mm-hmm. just to check, I understand. So you, you'd written your memoir and then you got a deal with the same publisher for a two book novel deal. Is that right? No. So that memoir and the novel were the two book deal. Two oh, I see. So, I see. Yeah. So when I was signed for the memoir, that was a two book deal. So I, I mean, I was owing it straight away, but I think definitely two or three years maybe passed before I sort of sat back down and thought, well, maybe I'll try fiction, but I had to try so many different methods of self-gaming you know to get myself Mm. to the thing to say oh I'm just I'm just doing an experiment this is a short story or this is you know just something and so because I could I just felt I could never sit down and say I'm a novelist now like it just I think you know if it's something you want so much and it seems like the absolute prize and it's the most amazing and prestigious thing you can't just sit down and decide that you're it you know Mm. what I mean like it would seem just exceptionally arrogant it'd be like well I'm a model now do you know what I mean like it just (laughs) it just doesn't seem like something you can say so I had to kind of trick myself into into getting there and then there were loads of false starts and things before I kind of came around to the idea that ended up as UV mother. 
Yeah, I do. I do know what you mean. Sometimes I write on my phone, like whole chapters, just because it doesn't really feel like I'm doing it properly. And actually, I sometimes find that the better stuff comes out that way. Yeah, exactly. Or really late at night or really early in the morning when no one's kind of around doing a proper job, you know, like at their proper real desk and you're there fiddling away with your little bit of fiction. It just feels sort of so embarrassing. I don't know why. It just, it just, um, yeah, considering no one can see it, I don't know why it's quite so embarrassing. <laughs> and did you know what kind of a writer you wanted to be? I think that with UV Mother, the kind of writer I wanted to be was not what ended up coming out. But that's because I'm probably naturally quite pretentious as a reader. And so I obviously loftily aspired to literary fiction, but it came out as something much more commercial, um, which there's nothing wrong with that. But I I think it was just finding my way in. And one of the um, obstacles to doing it, which I had to work through with my editor then, who's my editor now, is that because I've generally written humour um, in magazines and columns and things that probably comes more naturally to me but for some reason I had this real block in my mind about a funny book isn't literary and it's sort of somehow cheaper and it's it's easier so it it can't be that valuable if it's something that I can just do you know it can't it can't be worth anything so I'll struggle Mm -hmm. against it and I'll try and compensate by making it really dark and edgy and kind of gross in some places and like and then one day my editor was just like could you please just stop fighting it and kind of just go with it and just do what comes naturally to you and stop trying to be this completely opposite thing. So I think you be mother when I look at it now, I feel quite nostalgic. Again, I can't read it because who can go back and look at past work, but um, it's definitely a training novel. So I think the story is good, but I think if I did open it again, I'd be like, oh, lots of adverbs. <laughs> well, I have read it and I really enjoyed it. Um, it it's, very, <laughs> it, it's very funny and it is also very dark. And yet, although it shares both those things with Sorrow and Bliss, they are very different novels as well, which I, I want to get stuck into a little bit more in a bit when we're really talking about Sorrow and Bliss. But, but it's interesting to see the evolution. When you were writing it, did you feel like you were writing something good? I mean, I know you said there were some false starts, but did it feel enjoyable did it feel when I was um, writing you be mother yeah when you're writing you be mother did it feel did you feel like I'm turning out some nice sentences I like this plot I noticed in the acknowledgement to you be mother you say a thank you to Phil who is one of your lead characters and it's really sweet and you say Phil is this um, kind of elderly lady who forms this great bond with this very young mother Abby and it's and it's a wonderful story and at the end in your acknowledgments you say thank you to Phil I can't believe you don't exist it's very sweet so you I mean I feel that you must have you must have felt very affectionate towards them when you were writing it yeah and I think one of the one of the things that I did enjoy about it was that you learn that all the things that you've ever heard authors say are true like previously when I would hear an author say oh you know the characters become so real to you and they walk around inside your head you know you would be a bit like oh my gosh that's so fruity but it is actually completely true they do and I think over that year or year and a half I did form this complete attachment particularly to that character and I think you know as most first novels are was autobiographical in some ways with just the that isolation of the young motherhood experience that um the other character had and I think I did I enjoyed it from that perspective and I enjoyed feeling renewed and the idea that, gosh, maybe I can actually do it again and I will produce something else and it won't necessarily be that same experience that I had the first time. And I just felt a bit, a little bit older and a bit wiser, not all the way there, but, you know, getting closer in terms of how things were done. And so, and I think fiction was definitely really liberating because you can just, it's just not you. 
at the end. Mm. Mm. <clears throat> so you published Ebe Mother and that was the second of your two book deal. And then, so how did this, you took yourself off after a, a few years ago to your sheds, I believe, to write an untitled Christmas novel. Was that- Untitled under- Christmas novel. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> I read that in an interview. Yes. Yes. yes so how did that come about? We Did did you owe that? Were you under contract? And, and what, Again, what happened there? Yeah. So there was, there was another- book deal that came so with the same publisher this whole time so after those two came out even though you be mother didn't do spectacularly I think I was I've been very very lucky I wound up with a publisher who was really happy to just play the absolute long game like I clearly wasn't going to be one of those writers who just hit it the first time and you know all dazzling and brilliant bestseller but for some reason she just let me keep going at my own pace so I, I bet she's happy now and <laughs> <laughs> I hope so because I have put her through the app absolute mill like she's mopped <laughs> tears and she's you know had to do all of that endless pastoral care type stuff that publishers do but that contract was signed to this idea so there are sort of elements of it that are similar to sorrow and bliss but again having learned all of that with you be mother about just let it be funny and don't purposely try and be pretentious and dark I repeated the mistake exactly all over again except much much worse because as well as falling into all of those traps it was repetitive which is the absolute crime so I kept writing a worse version of UB Mother because I just kept Mm -hmm. drifting off into that sort of path that I'd learned and then what really took it to the next level of atrocity was that I panicked do you know and it had a really um very constrained technical conceit to it, which was going to be, this was the idea that I thought was so brilliant that now just makes me completely shudder. Um, <laughs> thinking that I had invented it, completely forgetting the existence of like David Nichols one day or, you know, novels like that. I thought, we'll meet this family on Christmas day, only ever on Christmas day. And it won't be consecutive Christmases. It will be like 1992 and 19, whatever, 1999. And then these two characters who were called Martha and Patrick would sort of keep meeting until eventually they fell in love. But basically started in January by February, I was like, shit, this this isn't gonna work because we're never gonna see it evolve. We're just gonna get endless set pieces, do you know? Because you could only sort of say, oh, that happened in 1992 and now it's 97 and it's all fine and nothing really happened, you know, like, so it just wasn't going to work, but I just couldn't, I'd sold it and I didn't have another idea. So I just forged on and on and then panicked and panic eventually led to thesaurus.com and Mm -hmm. a lot of crying and a lot of stomach cramps. And like I say all this, and I know that it isn't a real serious job, you know, like I'm not saving lives and all of those sorts of things, but it was the job that I wanted. So, you know, and had sort of always wanted, and there was definitely that sense of I've done it before. So I'll just stay sitting here and it will all sort of come right. Um, And after a year, it hadn't come right. And, and how much had you been working on it at that point? Because you, you were still a journalist in your day job as well, or were you a full-time writer at this stage? Yeah, no, no, still a journalist full-time. And so this was mornings and evenings and weekends. And I think when you say, you know, it's easy to say, so I, I stopped doing a lot of stuff to focus on the novel. And it sounds kind of relatively vague and like you might sort of be dabbling. But when I look back on it, that novel and also what became Sorrow and Bliss what you're really doing is every time your child says, do you want to go for a walk? You say no. And do they, can you come to my school play? No, I can't. Can you drive me here? No, I can't. You know, I can, can really relate like to that, husband? Meg. 
every single time and that is hundreds of times that you're doing that and so you sort of sound like oh it's just this and that but it's actually it's really tough on everybody because it's genuine choice between that thing which is really important and this thing which is important to you do you know and as women we're sort of not generally inclined to be like I'm gonna do my thing (laughs) you know what I mean like I'm gonna let everybody else just wait for me and do this so there was a lot of that and I think that's why when I ground to a halt in December just before it was due and really truly had to accept the fact that it was not it hadn't worked um I was devastated for myself but I was also really ashamed because it had cost everybody so much and so and Mm. also I would come out here to my shed and work for six hours on the weekend and I'd go back into the house and I'd be really upset and like either crying or grumpy or you know what I mean like it's such overkill now to kind of report it but that's what I was doing and so I mean that's no fun is it when mum who's been absent all day comes back inside and she's really sad so I was just so full of shame that I'd put everyone through it and that was part of the reason why I was like I can't do this again not for me and even more not for my entire family and friend group yeah and so and sorry how old were your kids when you you mentioned um I think you have two two daughters is that right two daughters yeah so they would have been they weren't babies so they were probably 13 and 15 I think or thereabouts so independent but you know not so independent that you've sort of done your done your work you know like you are still sort of moderately required in the house yeah so at that point you said you were done with fiction didn't you I did (laughs) and I just I my publisher and I talk about this all the time because we have just slightly different versions of what happened but (laughs) we both agree that we went out for this champagne that was in our diaries already because it was like three days after the due date and I'd sent it to her about two days before the due date and said it didn't turn out here it is please don't read it um and then I looked up this email basically because we were comparing stories the other day and I found it and it said it was so meek and sad and just sort of listless and it just said I think I'll be really relieved when you tell me to put it to one side and that was just sort of the email and then we went out and I cried obviously and she was like don't worry it's totally fine have a break all of those sorts of things and I don't think I ever articulated it, but in my head, I was like, I'm not, I'm not trying again. I'll, I'll try and find that money that you okay. gave me. I'll try and give it back because I really, oh, okay. I can't do that. So there wasn't like a, a formal full stop. Cause I was going to ask about the advance. She, she didn't ask for it back at that stage. <laughs> she didn't. I mean, it was long gone. So like, good luck to her trying yeah. to find said advance <laughs> that had been spent many months before. Um, and it wasn't a big advance. So that was good. Cause if it had been millions, I think that would have, you know, played in your mind, but this was not, this was probably not, you know, a huge, um, huge loss to the company. But anyway, so it just, that was December, I ruined Christmas for everyone by being miserable. And then it must have been about January or February that I just, I don't know. I don't know what happened because it, it I, I don't know how I came back out here because I really had put a padlock on the door sort of thing for the summer of the shed. And, but it really wasn't that long before I, I just came out here again. And I said to my publisher the other day, whether or not I articulated that I was officially quitting did you think I meant it? And she was like, absolutely not. I knew you'd be back like within some period of time. And so that, that turned out to be true as well. I think we should just always assume that what she says is true. And what I said is just through a haze <laughs> of emotion, you know, like unreliable narrator of my own story. Um, so anyway, so I did, and I just came back out here. But again, I think the, the trick there was that it wasn't to write her another novel. It definitely wasn't to redraft untitled Christmas novel, which mercifully she didn't ask me to do, which I think is probably the second 
greatest well not stroke of luck actually because it had nothing to do with luck but the thing I'm most grateful for is that she didn't tell me to go away and try and salvage it um because I'd still be trying to salvage it now two years later would you because yeah I mean I suppose the pressure of having someone else say we need this would have driven you on yeah well exactly and I think as you know as a journalist you're really deadlines really mean something and you they're not Mm -hmm. flexible and you don't just miss them you know like that sort of is absolute training to your core like the entire industry turns on it you know and your career as a freelancer depends on that as your sort of first principle and so to just blithely miss that deadline and then not have a new one set you know for me and for it all to become so amorphous I mean it was just really against nature you know so I think I think there's something very interesting actually in the interplay between being an author and a journalist generally which and obviously there is quite often an interplay the two often try each other out I think the thing with as being a journalist is you're quite used to delivering something that somebody else wants. I mean, off, obviously with a bit of mutual discussion, but That's so I, true. I, I find trying fiction strange and it is liberating, but also terrifying in kind of thinking, well, maybe they want this or maybe they don't want that. And it is a marketplace and that is true, but you can't really write that way. So it's quite a strange. You can't. But you've also got no markers because, you know, we know what a thousand words means. It's a two idea piece. You have this many words for the intro, this many for the outro. You've got to make two points, you know, in the middle with supporting whatever. And there is a bit of a formula to it and you can just do it. And at the end of the day, you say, this is what I made. It's finished. They take it. They give you money and it's all fairly prescribed, you know, like there's no of that wandering and that sort of figuring out as you go and and. Yeah, and you do have to sort of imagine an audience, but that's how I got so stuck as well, is this audience mm. in my mind had become huge, which is ironic because there was never going to be an audience. Um, <laughs> well, there is now, Meg, book. I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> yes, okay, so it's going to be interesting. Mm. Yeah, so Martha and Patrick were in the untitled Christmas novel. Um, how similar were they, they were. and how did they, clearly they never left, but I mean, how did they kind of reappear and force you to write them? Well, one of the things, one of the many fatal flaws of that novel was that I didn't like them and I wasn't interested in them. Those are the two issues that um, I think as novelists, if we sense that, we should probably listen to that intuition because that's a bad sign. You know, no one else is really going to be like so thrilled and engaged with them if you just don't find them interesting. Martha was kind of they really didn't have characters, to be honest. That was the other issue. And so I was sort of just driving these two on. So really the only thing that's come forward in it is that they met as teenagers and they eventually got married and then names them Martha and Patrick. That's pretty much it. Because there was none of the mental health aspect that came into Sir and Bliss. There wasn't, there was some supporting characters, but again, it's literally just their names. And then the only setting that came through and event that came through was the occasional Christmas that sort of motif that recurs through Sir Umbliss because Patrick comes for Christmas the first time that's how he sort of becomes a you know he's a boarding school stray who gets folded in and that's how they meet each other as teenagers so those are the only things that are brought forward but I think probably in terms of how different it ended up being for all sorts of reasons um when I did after about four or five months I'd been working on it in secret and I'm racing ahead slightly but you can decide how much of the intervening months you want um but when I finally did send it off again it was with a note to say this isn't for publication but I just I'm having such a lovely lovely time I'm so enjoying what I'm doing I'm going to finish it anyway and then you know dear publisher I will write you another novel I hope um and two weeks went by before she wrote back 
And about halfway into that, I just sent her the same thing. <gasps> Please just give it back. Don't read it. Don't read it. Cause you know, I'd burst that wonderful bubble that I'd created for myself and got immediate stage fright. And then actually it must've been towards the end of the two weeks. Cause then she wrote straight back and said, it's too late. I've read it. But she didn't like it when she first opened it because it was so different that she sort of didn't know what she was looking at because oh, it's really? still Martha and Patrick, but in such a different setting mm. and completely different tone, completely different story. And she just, I guess, not wanting to have another difficult conversation with me, just slightly slid it into her, you know, to do pile and thought she'd come back to it and have another look, which mercifully she did and then just saw it, I guess, as its own whole thing rather than a reiteration of untitled Christmas novel RIP. <laughs> do you remember the exact moment you decided to shelve untitled Christmas novel? I do. No, it had no title. And I think I had some titles and they kept not working. So I kept turning it back into an untitled Christmas novel. Um, and I, yeah, it was a couple of days before publication. And I, I mean, before the due date, and I wrote her that email and I attached it and then I just put my head down on my desk and I just like started crying. And then one of the only autobiographical sort of notes in Sorrow and Bliss is that then I sort of, as an exercise of self-punishment, went on a jobs website to see what other jobs there are and literally could not come up with anything except Sydney Metro. That's the only, you know, the only field that I was confidently able to fill in was the location because um, <laughs> I don't have any other skills. So that was a very sad <laughs> afternoon. Oh, gosh. And when you told your family that you were shelving it and also that you were potentially giving up fiction forever, what did they say? Because I know you were, you were worried about having spent time away from them, but how did they feel about you giving up fiction? Yeah, do you know what's funny? I don't actually remember how they reacted. I'm sure, because my husband and I walked the dog really early in the morning and he, he kind of, we have this joke that I'm a real bottler of my emotions, except I bottle them in his bottle. Do you know what I mean? I get them out of my bottle and then he forces them down for me because I have to get everything out. So I, I had been sort of, he'd been very much on this journey, you know, the entire time. And it wasn't a surprise to him that this was about to happen. And I'm sure we'd workshopped it and stuff. But I think it's more what I remember is sort of telling friends who, again, had been with me on the journey, but not in such absolute granular detail of every up and down and thinking it might be all right and that it wasn't all right. And so I remember having coffee with one of them saying, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do it. And they were like, it'll be fine. Just keep going, you know, and all of that positivity, but just thinking, no, I'm really, really not going to do it. And I think... I think I was just embarrassed. I was just so embarrassed because you talk so much about what you're doing and, you know, and then you've failed, you've just failed. And it's such a fizzing out too. It's not really a dramatic, I published a book and it crashed. It was just, I just walked away one day. I think that's so interesting. In some ways, I feel like I made this podcast actually to avoid that fizzing out because I felt the embarrassment of having to like, periodically tell people my book hadn't sold would be worse than just announcing it in one big embarrassing go <laughs> um, because yeah right, exactly rip it off it. yeah but I think it's I mean it's it's so interesting the nightmare scenario is your scenario really and, and actually I mean I did a, a writing course and and uh, you know they they tell you continuously you know just get the words on the page you can't fix a blank page um, mm -hmm. just get it down and then you'll fix it I mean, how do you think you tell the difference between pushing on where you shouldn't and pushing on where you should? This is the thing. That is such a question. I'm trying to work it out now because I've just started something new and I'm obviously hyper aware of like, is it hard 
like, is it reasonably hard or is it too hard? And I'm constantly sort of taking the temperature on whether it's sorrow and bliss, which was some days very difficult, but most days it was really joyous and exciting. Um, but then, you know, because you can't sit down and expect it to be really easy. And I'm conscious of the fact that sorrow and bliss was a real one-off experience that probably occurred because I had already done a whole novel's worth of suffering in preparation for it. Do you know what I mean? And somehow having gone through that whole thing of I'm giving it up and no audience and this is just for me um I'd obviously liberated myself from all of the silliness in my own head and all of the you know restriction I'd put on myself but it's really difficult I think ultimately like George Saunders has this lovely line in that new Swimming Upon With Rain book that I'm sort of walking around with it just under my arm all the time hoping to just osmose it um <laughs> about how every life no matter how insignificant seeming deserves to have attention paid to it and it is valid as you know this person's life is valid as the subject of a novel because you said it is you know what I mean if you've chosen to write a novel about this person that qualifies them because you're obviously that interested so I suppose it's interest and there must have been so many days when I came out here and I wasn't interested in what was going to happen to my characters so I just had to drive them through some action and push some plot onto them and I couldn't hear their voices and so it was just like listening to myself talk and that sort of thing whereas with Sorrow and Bliss I would sort of feel an enormous amount of sort of anticipation and you know and it didn't have anything to do with quality it wasn't that I was looking at it and being like oh my gosh I'm actually a rare and talented genius and this is all gold but I was just so excited to be out here and to be sort of spending that time with them and I found them funny and interesting and so that is probably what I need to carry forward into this one to be like are these people interesting to you do you still find them interesting that feels like a really good way of demarcating what to write and what not to write, actually. So so let's talk about Sorrow and Bliss properly. I'm just going to say, obviously, for listeners who haven't read it, uh, Sorrow and Bliss is about Martha, who at the beginning of the book is just turning 40 and is just splitting up with her husband, Patrick. And then we go back in time and we find out all about why, about Martha's fascinating, crazy family and her wonderful sister, Ingrid, who communicates largely in gifts uh, of drunken Kate Moss <laughs> and emojis. Um, and of course, Martha's poor mental health, which is sort of at the heart of the novel. And Martha is this extraordinary character. I mean, so kind of arch and intelligent, funny, sometimes very cruel, often unlikable, but somehow lovable too, which I guess plays into what you were just saying. Um, I mean, really, I just, I just love it. Tell us a little bit about how you wrote it. You've told us how you sort of started writing it. But once you got into it, even though it was kind of in the shed sort of secretly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Were you writing chronologically? I know you've, you've said before about how you rewrote certain scenes like the bathroom scene at the party quite a lot. Um, how, what did the writing process look for you once you got going? Well, it. You know, isn't it funny? It's so hard to remember because you just remember these particular moments rather than the evolution because it is now so long ago and it is through such a haze of sort of the emotion that you're feeling at the time. Um, but I do know that after I wrote that, the scene where that became the canopy scene, canopy scene where Martha and Patrick, we meet them for the very first time on page one at a wedding and Martha spotted this woman in the corner at the reception and she's alone. And so Patrick says, well, just, you know, stop feeling sad. Let's just go and talk to her. And they do that. And obviously Martha's feeling sort of crippled with embarrassment on her behalf because she's eating this canopy and she can't get it fully into her mouth and then she can't get it fully out of her mouth. And it's this awkward situation, which when in the previous version, Martha was not simply, at all and I wasn't interested in her 
she wouldn't have done something like that. And then so on this page there, she was suddenly with Patrick by her side. They were doing something where they were in sympathy with each other. And Martha was showing this empathy, even though it was awkward and difficult for her. And I just was interested in that and what got them into that situation. And then a jump to the sort of scene that came to me next was that her 40th birthday party and they were in the last two days of their marriage. And then I just wanted to know, I suppose for myself, what happened in between. But after those two things had been written, I wrote this little page for myself, which was sort of not rules because I was really against at that point, forcing myself to do anything or setting out guidelines or anything. But it was just, I guess, encouragements. And one of them was that I've talked about a little bit before, just say what happens, just tell it. I switched to the first person. That was a big Thing. that was the first time I'd ever written in first person so suddenly Martha was telling her story so I just let her say it as you and I would be talking she's not going to you know fill her conversation with adverbs and adjectives and you know sashaying and mumbling and uttering and she's just going to say what happened and so I did that and then I banned myself from the thesaurus so if I didn't know a word you know this is what it said on the piece of paper if you don't know the word you don't need it so just don't use it don't go looking for it to try and appear clever and so that's where that quite sparse tone came from yeah and I think there's there's also a thing and this gets a bit technical so you can completely just leap over this but you know how it's so because what I hated so much about the previous one was it was so novelly and really self-conscious and you would look at it and think here's someone who's trying to write a novel and being novelly and doing metaphors and doing similes and pushing them onto the page and I was so embarrassed by that that then I sort of wanted it to be as as unnovelly as possible. So instead of saying, you know, Patrick, you know, or something, um, Martha, do you want a cup of tea? Asked Patrick. He then sat down and did that. It just was Patrick said, Do you want a cup of tea? It just was less embarrassing to me for some reason. Yeah. In a previous a piece maybe you've written, you said, um, if a character sits down, Martha says he sat down, not he collapsed onto the well-worn velvet sofa, riven with anxiety as a sharp wind forced its way through the peeling window frames like ice cold fingers, <laughs> which is, I mean, it's so funny. And I, and I feel like there's a writing masterclass in that one paragraph, actually. Um, was it hard to stop yourself doing that kind of novelly thing that you'd done previously? It actually wasn't. It was that was the easiest part. And that was the most joyful and liberating part, because suddenly I wasn't performing for anybody. You know, I was just writing a story that I was interested in. And again, I didn't have the whole mental health conceit as the or, you know, that as the theme of it or the access for the story. It was just that I wanted to work out why their marriage was over and with a sense of Martha knowing but not knowing herself why that might be and so obviously then one day it turned into she has this undiagnosed mental illness that is suddenly then diagnosed 20 years later or 20 years too late depending on you know how she's going to choose to perceive it so that all evolved and then you know Ingrid became a more central character and those sorts of things but again you know it's so interesting and I say this without comparing myself to Hilary Mantel which is going to sound like it's what I'm doing but I promise I'm not um (laughs) it really resonated with me lately when someone asked her about how she settled on that tone for Wolf Hall in the present tense when it's historical fiction and all of that and she said that I think she must have I think she said she'd done years and years and years and years of research but then when she sat down to write that and the first sentence you know so now get up came out she sort of 
said that every single decision for the entire novel was made in that split second and that was everything it was all it was the form and it was all of the decisions that would then bear out in the next you know 500 pages and I think that is a little bit how it works like if you've done you know in inverted commas all your reading then something those decisions don't need to get made they just they're just somehow made and you just proceed with them you know Mm. Did you find it hard to write in the first person? Well, I'd never written anything in the first person before, but because one of my anxieties with the previous thing was that I kept repeating myself of you be mother and that was in the third person. So once you switch to the first person, the form cannot, you simply cannot repeat yourself in that way because the form is just so different. And, you know, suddenly you, the character who's speaking has to be in every single scene so that completely changes how the story is told and then you you can hear their thoughts but you can't hear other people's thoughts and you know all of that sort of thing so it just completely changes the nature of the story and so that was really significant and I don't think I would have found my way if I hadn't suddenly just sat down and wrote written that canopy scene in the first person I think all of it happened in the space of that wedding reception (laughs) That's so interesting. And yeah, it's very, it's very important to Martha's character that it's sort of her mystery of her own head to unravel, isn't it? Like it would be Mm. weird if it was someone else observing it. Um, I think so. Yeah, it just wouldn't work, would it? It wouldn't, because part of what you're doing, I've learned, is that you're deciding what to reveal when and how much tension to hold and how much to let people know at what stage. But if you went into it bowling in as the narrator and obviously you already know, then there was just no mystery at the heart of it, which is which is sort of what the whole thing is about. Yes. Another thing you've said in a previous interview, but this is, I think, after you be mother, was you said, when I hear another author say, uh, oh, it all sort of comes out, the story unfolds on its own, and most of all, the character just appeared, I feel like kicking them in the shins, because it does not just come out on its own. <laughs> Every word has to, be, has to be chosen one by one. It's interesting now thinking about sorrow and bliss because that does sort of feel like it just kind of came roaring out how do you do you feel like kicking those other people in the shins a bit less now or, or was with sorrow no, and bliss I feel still like quite myself hard in the shins no <laughs> yeah no I, I feel like kicking myself because I'm that person now I am the enemy who says that it came out but I think all I would say is that it only did because of the year of stomach cramps that preceded it do you know what I mean like there's absolutely no way that it would have come out had I not put myself and everyone else through that because it was it was preparation and it was sort of thinking about who these people are and it it is what got me to the tone because it was the tone of sorrow and bliss which is the thing that I think I you know I don't want to say that it makes it but it makes it to me like it's the book it is because of that unusual tone um was all in reaction to what I'd done before so I do still hate it when people say that and I'm sorry that I also say it <laughs> <laughs> are you feeling that way with the th- new thing you're working on that it's coming roaring out Yeah, I think so. But this is kind of um, the trick now is to convince myself that no one's looking again. And that's proving a little bit harder Um, just (laughs) right now, only because I'm talking about Sorrow and Bliss a lot, just because it's been out here for six months um, and it's been wonderful. But just as that, you know, you sort of think that might start to quieten down a little bit. um, It's come out in the UK. And so it's sort of back to being a day job, which is, you know, an amazing and brilliant problem to have. But it's sort of strange. I haven't had to toggle between two books before because once UV Mother was finished, it had its run you know of a few months and then it was completely over and went away and so it was really just great in that sense but this is the overlap is different so but I think the part that will help me um 
to to get out of my own head or at least to create a little bit of space is the fact that now while people can talk about Martha and Patrick and I love them doing that and it's so interesting nobody knows who these people are except me again do you know what I mean so I can sort of I've got these little characters who you know it's them and me in the shed again that's interesting I I remember years ago a friend's father who um, is a writer of non-fiction when I was talking about writing books and he said I have one piece of advice to you do not talk to people about it oh my gosh well Anne Patchett talks about it in her this is a story of a happy marriage essay how when you conceive of it it's like this beautiful butterfly like just multicolored and splendid flying around in front of you and just so exquisite and then by the time you've trapped it in your hand and nailed it down to the paper it's like a dusty disintegrating moth with a massive pin through it you know like it just looks nothing like what you said and I think you put yourself you expedite that process by trying to talk about it you know what I mean it just doesn't make any sense to someone who's and if you see even that flicker on their face of doubt then you're like you hate it I hate it everyone hates it um and so you just you just throw that away and also the story isn't the main thing is it like it's the form and it's the language and you can't describe that Mm. orally so there's just really no point that's true shame plays an enormous part in sorrow and bliss Martha is of course (laughs) endlessly ashamed um in a very interesting way though as well she's she's sort of ashamed of kind of dragging Patrick into her shameful life and then she sort of ends up hating him a little bit I think as if he's you know just because he can see it I guess um what is your experience of shame and how does it filter through to your writing do you think well I think it's an enormous thing it's an enormous thing I don't think I'm unusual in that that you know that I sort of struggle with with feeling like I haven't done it right or you know that I'm problematic or difficult or all of those things I think why shame has become such a factor in Sorambus is again where I started so even though when people say it's autobiographical I can truthfully say it isn't in terms of her story where she began is 100% autobiographical because she begins at the end of her marriage and I began at the end of my career do you know what I mean as far as I could perceive it and so it was very much that sort of um taking her through that story she was trying to unravel why and when when anyone says as they are completely entitled to do that she's awful and unlikable and all of those things I sort of just want to say slightly in her defense I'm like but it's a 352 page apology like she never does anything wrong and reports on it without it being in the context of apology or shame you know she'll report these terrible things that she does to Patrick like when she's at her 40th birthday party and he's about to make a speech and she nicks his palm cards off him and it's like don't give this speech which is horrible she doesn't say and that was brilliant and completely fair do you know what I mean like she's so ashamed it's you know that scene leads into her sort of the essence of the novel describing how everybody thinks that she must want to be like this but she's spent her whole life trying to be the exact opposite of it so I think I mean shame is that sort of driving force and it's her trying to explain that because her sense is very much that Um, it was always the illness or largely it was the illness that made me do these things and I kind of knew it but without a diagnosis she could never convince anybody that it wasn't just her and you behave awfully for whatever reason and you do feel ashamed and I think in her case she's been doing it for 20 years so that's quite the accretion isn't it of things to be sorry for. Mm, Yeah I spent a lot I mean I've read it a few times now actually and I and I um and I 
I, I, every time I've sort of tried to work out if I would like Martha in real life, uh, and she does. I mean, I, the, the one of the biggest accomplishment of the book, I think, is, is she's so thoroughly realised. You know, she does feel very real. But I kept on coming to the conclusion that actually, probably if I met her in real life, I I might not like her. But that's because she's in this very extended temporary state, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I and I love her in the novel. I I want to hang out with her, but in real life, maybe not so. And I, it's such a strange yeah. dichotomy, isn't it? It is. It is, and I think it's what I find really interesting about that is Ingrid began as um, Ingrid wasn't going to exist. Ingrid was going to be Martha's imagining of what her life would have been like had she not had this illness. So when you think about Ingrid, you know she has a family home and a stable marriage and children, and she had a you know a career that she wanted. And Martha was going to sort of you know eventually reveal at the end that there was no Ingrid. Um, but ah. what what that means is, and I'm really glad I took that out as a as a you know sort of device because it would have been really overcooked. But um, what it means is that, that where they began in my mind is that Ingrid and Martha are the same person, so they're That's obviously so really close as yeah. siblings. But Martha is doesn't tell you she's not telling you the true whole story about herself. But because she's so ashamed, she presents her her I guess contribution one way but then portrays the people that she loves with enormous generosity so people tend to like Ingrid a lot and they sort of like she's a sister I would want but if you actually look at it she's just as awful to her husband she doesn't speak to her mother she's kind of shonky with those children but for some reason the way Martha portrays her is that we all think she's sort of brilliant but Ingrid must feel the same way about about Martha in reverse. So I think that you have to, I guess, I would hope that people could look past the way that Martha's explaining it to you and be like, but what would she really be like? Because there are a lot of people who are really hanging in there for her. So, you know, she must have her appeal. Definitely. I mean, I have written here in my notes, actually, Ingrid, Martha, doppelganger, um, <laughs> Ma- Martha without her mental health issues. And that, that's what she always felt like to me. She makes exactly the same kind of jokes. And you're right, she is kind of awful to her husband. And they're so great. I mean, they are just a wonderful sibling duo. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of people are Thank saying you. that they are kind of the heart of the book. And I, I agree, in some ways they are. I mean, they're certainly the thing that kind of keeps Martha standing up. Yeah, I think so. And I think obviously a lot of the little vignettes that kind of appear throughout the book, which are where a lot of the, I guess, characterization of Martha more truthfully, like as in if she's reporting something that she's seen or observed, it's often about Ingrid's children, her sons, who she obviously Martha clearly loves. And those are the episodes where Martha's more inclined to actually report sort of in a straight way on what happened. And that's where you do get a clue to how empathetic she is and how much she loves those little boys. And so Martha, also, I mean, Ingrid also has that function because they're her children and it lets Martha, I guess, explore that side of herself. Yeah. Let's talk for a second about Jonathan. Terrible, oh. wonderful Jonathan. Oh my God. Jonathan is Martha's first husband. And he is this white jean wearing, cocaine snorting, awful Aqua person who, yeah. <laughs> yeah, who, who puts half eaten sushi back on the back on the conveyor belt in restaurants. He is so he is such a monstrosity. Is he based on anyone? <laughs> He's not. And do you know the weirdest thing about him? This is when you can really, really kick me in the shins for this, because I was writing away and I was up to the sort of part where Martha's about 25 and she gets that job at Vogue finished a chapter 
probably went inside, made dinner, whatever, came back out. And usually choosing a character's name is quite a back and forth process. And you're doing a lot of find and replace of like, oh, what if his name was this? And just trying it all out. Anyway, I sat down at my next session and I'd finished the chapter where we were talking about something completely different and sort of, you know, page break. And then just went. the first time I got married was to a man called Jonathan Strong. And I'm like, was it? And I didn't even have a first marriage <laughs> in mind. I didn't have him in mind or his name. And that just sort of happened. Like, I mean, gosh, that's just repulsive to even did a thing because that was the sort of first, I guess, exercise in Martha just wanting to be someone else. Again, he does feel very fully formed, even though he's in a way a peripheral character. And I just love to hate him. Um, I think oh, about him quite good. a lot and, and look for him in, in people <laughs> I might meet. And then you do I occasionally just... see him sometimes walking down the street, even though he's not autobiographical. Occasionally a man will walk past and I'm like, oh, it's John. Well, what I love about him is you really don't describe where he comes from. You you could have put a lot of demographic detail and that sort of thing, and you don't. And I think it's stronger for it because it's just all the specificity of what he does and what he says that makes him, and he is awful in every way. Um, <laughs> and on the flip side, we have Peregrine, who I wanted to briefly touch on, who... Um, is this kind of ostentatious, effete guy who is a publisher that Martha works for briefly and, and he takes her under his wing. Um, and he says, at one point, he says, first novels are autobiography and wish fulfillment. One's got to push all one's disappointment and unmet desires through the pipes before one can write anything useful. Do you think that's true? Is that is that Peregrine speaking for you a wee bit? Well, there are definitely little jokes about novel writing throughout the book, which are probably me getting my revenge on the whole publication process. So there's a part at which Martha talks about the fact that she's trying to write this novel and it keeps erring towards autobiography. Um, you know, and she says, I think something like, um, everything that happened to the girl happened unexpectedly. And no matter how hard I tried, she was always on the stairs because sometimes you do find as a novelist that you're like, oh, not another scene where they're on the sofa. I've got to relocate them because you just keep falling into these, <laughs> these sort of setting ruts and things like that. But with Peregrine, I think I definitely got all my autobiography out with the first one. And then with this one, it was probably wish fulfillment in terms of Ingrid because I don't have a sister. And so I think okay. I got to sort of enjoy a bit of that. But um, yeah, I think so. I mean, it's just, it's just sort of fun. And there's a joke in there about thesaurus.com that's made by Peregrine so I think when my publisher said that nothing's ever wasted on that tearful champagne she was correct in the end because I was recycling everything that I learned kind of in a meta sense into this novel as well. Yes it's funny I mean quite a few of the people I've interviewed for this podcast have talked about recycling people who didn't make it and I think it must happen a lot um, that nothing is ever it wasted. Must. It sounds very trite if you're in the middle of something horrific, but it's, it clearly does happen a lot. Yeah. And I think it just once you, even if it's not going well, I think once you sit down and put yourself in that posture almost of writing a novel, there's something that does happen in your brain that it just changes your awareness of what you're reading and what you're seeing and what you're listening to. A novel of Starmus that I can see that I'd either been saving them for a really long time or I had just seen them that day and put them in because you just become much more sensitive to everything that's going on and so and you do start to collect things but I think that's probably what I would say you know when you're talking about your creative writing course I don't necessarily think you should just plow on but I think you do have to admit to yourself that you're doing it because it changes slightly what you see and what you retain and all those sorts of things so that you're just more aware 
um, mm. of what's of what's going on. But but again, I think you just have to figure it out, don't you? Because if you try and stick to exactly what's in a writing book, one day you'll hit the absence of a chapter. Do you know? I've never found a writing book that's like, what do you do when you've neglected your family for a whole year? You spent your advance and you've got no money and you hate yourself. And it's just like, oh, there's no actual chapter here because you just have to figure it out. <laughs> well, now we can we can write one, the Meg Mason chapter, which is write something for fun and have it end up being a global global sensation <laughs> easy peasy yeah and and then I need the chapter that's like how to repeat that experience and make it happen again so it's not just a coincidence but now we can just listen to this podcast because I could just honestly I listen to it while I'm walking the dog and just be like oh this is a wonderful catalog of people who failed like you would never <laughs> look at them from the outside would you and think Julian Fellows had this happen and this happen and oh have you listened to what it people have been told oh of course but you oh, know it's great. what people were told by someone which is so horrific isn't it like yeah oh this will never work or this or whatever and it's just like oh Oh, it's amazing. I love it. Yeah. I could listen to talking about failure forever. Well, I'm so glad you've listened to it. And I wanted to ask you as a final question, do you worry that you would ever have the same experience again where you can't finish what you started? And how do you think you would handle it if it happened to you again? I think that I would have to. I mean, it's all about framing that narrative, isn't it? And it's all about kind of keeping yourself as emotionally level as you possibly can while you're doing this thing. You just wish that you had noise cancelling headphones for like inside your head so that you could just put some of that constant sort of meta monologue away just while you got the work done. But I think I will have to just now, if it does happen again, I mean, I would I would have to tell myself that a false start is that's not the right term for it. It's just a start that turned out to not be the, the one that you in the end, you know, persisted with, but you, you just can't be like, well, that's another three months down the drain. And like, it's too much pressure. And you just sort of, I guess I have to see that well, that was an exercise to work out if it was going to, if it was going to go that way. And actually we've now established that it wasn't. And so isn't that great to have ruled that out, you know? And I guess to trust yourself that there will be something else that comes along behind it the only proper proper failure is just giving up forever and pretending you don't really want it thank you so much for listening to write-off many of you have asked if I'm going to do a second series and the answer is I'd really really like to but I need to find a sponsor making a podcast is surprisingly time-consuming So if you know a company that you think might be interested, please do spread the word. In the meantime, please do rate it or review it on your Apple podcast app if you can or on Twitter. It really does make a difference as it helps people find the podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Francesca Steele with an E at the end. And you can buy buy books by all my guests at my online bookshop. The link is in the show notes. Thank you all so much for listening and have a great summer. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.